public comment. Um, and so, sir, if you will come up and state your name, and then I'm going to ask the rest of you if you will fill out cards. Anybody else who wishes to make a comment, please fill out a card. My name is. Hello. Good evening, board. Uh, my name is Joe Rose. I'm uh, president of NAMI, that's National Alliance of Mental Illness, Alameda County South. I uh, provide services to John George Psychiatric Pavilion Hospital now. And uh, I was <coughs> CC'd on a number of uh, emails going back and forth about the census issue in the uh, PES section there. The, PES stands for Psychiatric Emergency Services. And so I decided to come in and let you know what I heard from my standpoint. Uh, we have, we do uh, in our own voice presentations there once a week, every week on all three inpatient units. And we also do the Mentors on Discharge program there where we pr provide a mentor to uh, inpatients prior to discharge. So I hear secondhand from my uh, uh, inner voice presenters and from the mentors things that are going on in the hospital secondhand, but I hear about them. And what I, when I saw these emails going back and forth, I started to ask them, do they hear any problems in the emergency? Because all of the, although I deal with inpatient, they all come through the uh, PES area. And talking with them, they're saying to me that they haven't uh, had any experience with any negative experience with PES. So that's from a patient's secondhand standpoint. So I don't know exactly what the ramifications are on the other side, but from the patient's side, I'm not hearing any problems from, from, from them. So I just wanted to let you know from my perspective what I see going on at John George. Thank you. Ms. Sawyer, this is the order. Um, Frederick Keita, that was you, sir. Is there anything else? Okay. Oh, oh Keita, sorry. Uh, I have some handouts. Mr. Keita? Uh, yeah, I was just, uh, just kind of trying to wait for those things to be disseminated. Uh, you want me to start right now? Oh. Let's start. There you go. We've got the right numbers on the clock. Please go ahead. Okay. Um, good evening. Uh, my name is Spread Tatum, and I am nurse manager of emergency services at John George Psychiatric <coughs> Hospital. On October 1st, PES staff, staff sent a series of emails to John George administration and executive administration at Alameda Health System. Uh, the questions posed in that email were three. Uh, the first question was, what is our designation as a provider of services? The second question was, based on that designation, what is our mandated staffing ratio requirements? Specifically, are we licensed as a PES, an outpatient service, or a crisis stabilization unit? And the third question was, what is the fire code for our facility? Um, let me recite uh, the answers to the questions that we got in email and that I plan to share with our CEO and Board of Trustees in uh, 
two binders that I brought with me today. Uh, the first uh, administrator stated that this is a very delicate issue and must be addressed with the understanding that labor relations and contract issues could be involved. Uh, we need to develop a uniform response and approach to communication prior to having an open discussion of this issue. Fair enough. Uh, number administrator states to me that we're a CSU, Crisis Stabilization Unit, and we staff at one to four, and then another time he is telling a physician that we have a state-mandated one to six staffing ratio requirement. The third and final response that we got from another administrator um, <clears throat> is that PES is considered a crisis stabilization unit. It's one designation. It is outpatient, which is something else. As such, the law does not require ratios. The fire marshal has given no limit for PES occupancy. So the final official answer that we received is that there are no ratio requirements at all for staffing and or for fire safety. Now, <clears throat> I'm smart enough to know that that makes no sense. Currently, nurses routinely have in excess of six patients, going as high as having 10 to 12 patients when our census has gone up. This is extremely relevant because according to our own internal policy, if you look, out hand, if you look at handout A and turn to the second page, right under psychiatric uh, nursing staffing ratios, it says right there that we staff at one to six. That's from our policy tech website. Um, so, you know, in addition to that, I visited the California Department of Public Health and I asked her, what is our ratio requirement? How are we supposed to staff? How are we licensed? And she said, you all are governed by EMTALA. You're supposed to staff at one to six. If you turn to handout B, there's Title 22. It says one to six. I put an arrow there. So that you could so that you could see it. Mr. Tatum, that was three minutes. Um, I think people are giving me time. Well, I'm gonna, what I need to do is to call each person, have them come up, and give you time. Oh yes, ma'am. Okay. So the next person is Madeline. Looks like Tom. Yeah, please. I'm giving you my time. Thank you. Okay. You have three additional minutes. Okay. <clears throat> In its current state, John George has no, no limit of the fire limit for occupancy. That's in part because we've never asked. Um, and the nurses have more than the mandated ratio, approximately one-fifth of the time. If you look at handout C, you'll see a series of uh, bars there. Now, this graph is indicating the number of times that we've gone over 60 and 70 patients every month. And this is all completely verifiable. Um, the checkered bar is the number of times we've gone over 70 patients. And those, that checkered bar includes a lot of 80s too. Uh, 88 was the highest that I had ever seen. Um, this is extremely important because, you know, our core staffing is 9 to 11 licenses any given day. I think we have 11 three days. Now that nine licenses covers us for 42 patients, and the 11 licenses covers us for up to 54. Um, if we're lucky, we can get people to come in and work and uh, cover shifts for us. Um, so if you look at this chart, those numbers at the bottom of each bar graph are the number of times that we've gone over the one to six ratio. So there's three shifts in a day. Um, so you think about January, there's
years, 31 days, 3 times 31 is 93, so 15 out of 93 is about 14%, and some of our months are, are worse, uh, but overall about 20% of the time the nurses are outside of the normal ratio. Uh, so moving on and proving my point, if you refer to handout D, this is our staffing matrix. It tells the RN supervisor how many nurses to have for the number of patients in PES. Uh, this tool helps to meet staffing ratio requirements so that we have enough um, nurses and it also helps us to not accrue overtime. Um, so Joint Commission visited us on December 15th, 16th, and 17th of 2014. Um, at that time, our average census was in the mid-50s. I went back and looked at December and averaged all the days out. So if you look, out, look at handout E, you will see that our census during that time was in the 20s and 30s. Sorry, it's hard to flip through this stuff. Our census is in the 20s and 30s. Now look at day shifts, starting census of 39 patients. But if you go over, we're staffed with 36. We don't know that they're coming in the morning. And by evening shift, we're down to 28 patients, but we're staffed with 42. Thank you, sir. Uh, yes, we have Jody. Is that the last name? A-W-O-D-I? I'll give my time to Thank you. But we're staffed for 42 patients, and then look at the remainder of the week. Tuesday, December 16th, starting census of 30, staffed for 51 patients. Uh, evening shift, 21 patients. Uh, at the end, 28, staffed for 57. Same thing on Knox, 33% over, 28 patients, staffed for 42. And then the day before they leave, the day that they leave on day shift, we're overstaffed. The census gets down to 13 patients, and I remember that day. It went as low as nine. We had more pa we had more staff than patients. We're staffed up for 36 at night. We continue to be staffed up, and then for knock shift, um, you know, we're right back on par with our normal staffing levels, 34 uh, by the at the ending census, but we're staffed for 36. Um, this misrepresentation is not an anomaly, you know, staffing like this. It's not an anomaly. Uh, on Friday, November 13th, the California Department of Public Health paid John George a visit. Uh, the nurses who were present during the visit told me that they overheard so much misinformation being told to the surveyor that they gave her my number and told her to call me to get an accounting of the actual processes and metrics. Uh, so she called me. And I went and met with her the following Tuesday, on November 16th. Uh, what I learned on accident from meeting with this lady was that uh, she was only given census data for a few weeks in November, which showed a lower than average census, and we failed to report a patient death which occurred in PES on October 25th, which was less than a month prior to her visit, and we failed to report a major incident in which a patient scaled our PES fence and climbed onto the roof and threatened to jump. All significant patient safety issues, she had no idea, no idea. Um, after the meeting, after meeting with me, 
the surveyor visited John George on two consecutive days, Wednesday, November 18th, and Thursday, November 19th. I have no idea what she found, but I do know that she contacted OSHA, who came the same day as her, and she and her boss spoke with me about filing a report with CMS. Uh, now, she came Wednesday and Thursday. Let me tell you about the staffing for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. If you'll turn to handout F. Friday, November 20th, beginning of the shift, starting census is 62. We're staffed for 66 patients. Um, same thing, uh, evening shift 42, we're staffed for 45. Knock shift 28, staffed for 42. Ma'am? Yes, sorry. It's all right. I was listening, reading the chart. Um, yes, do we have Sawyer? Thank you. Okay, so the following weekend, Saturday and Sunday, look at the staffing. Look at how we staffed up in anticipation of regulators coming to uh, look at John George. Starting census for day shift is 38, by the end it's 32. We're, we're staffed for 66. Um, evening shift, 32. We're staffed for 51. 41. We, we never go over 50 patients, but we've got 14 licenses in the building to be demonstrative of the fact that we're doing a good job with our patients in regards to staffing ratios. This binder is full of days where nurses have eight, nine, and 10 patients each. Uh, my job as manager of PES is to serve as an advocate for patients and staff. That's the only reason why I took part in this initiative, because it never sat right with me to sit by idly while we are you know, considering magnet status and accepting national awards and you know, flying all over the world talking about the work that we do. Um, you know, while essentially the real deal is nurses are being assaulted, they're overworked, and our patients are laying in an unclean and unsafe environment. We are proposing a census cap uh, in PES um, to reflect our current staffing levels. Um, at this time, I want to open up the floor so that the nurses can tell you what it's like to, to work at John George. I need to say it. That's it. Hi, my name is BJ Wilson, and I'm a registered nurse, and I currently work in psych emergency over John George, and I'm also a senior shop steward with SEIU 1021. What I'm here to talk about is some of the things that Fred has told you. Uh, I've witnessed, I've been a part of it, and we have a lot of disparate treatment going on at John George. We have a lot of uh, bending and twisting of some of the rules and regulations when it comes to 
the patients and the staff. The overall, overall morale at John George is at an all-time low. It used to be at one time staff came to John George in fear that we were going to be assaulted by a patient. And now the fear of the staff is not being assaulted by a patient, but being assaulted by administration. Because if you talk, if you speak out, you're going to be reprimanded, you're going to be called in, you're going to be questioned, your peers are going to be questioned, your credibility is going to be on the line. There are a lot of rules that we originally had at John George that <clears throat> have since been changed with this current administration. And they were all based on safety things that we realized that when we got there, we had to make some changes from what we had. And undoing what we did do caused us to put staff and patients in jeopardy. Nobody wants to get hurt. Nobody wants to get assaulted. And when we put 60, 70, 80 people in a room or a unit that originally was geared to have 15 patients in it. So I don't understand when they say there's no limit because the, the unit where we're at now was originally unit A. And the capacity of that unit was 15 patients, not including the staff. When psych emergency was cited and we were told we had to go to a bigger spot, it was decided that at that time we would go over to a unit. And the fire marshal came over, marked off, pointed out areas where we could, could not put patients, and that the capacity of that room would be 25. We were not to block any doors. We were supposed to have enough space where a bed or a gurney could be pushed through in case there was an emergency situation. But we have Farley exceeded that on a daily basis because we have more than 25 patients in that particular area on a daily basis. When we're told that we don't have a cap, we don't have a census thing, and that there's no reason why we are packing people in like sardines, sooner or later something's going to happen. And when that happens, then we all spring forth and something, we've already had a death there years ago. And those of us who've been working there, uh, some of us Thank you still think about what happened, how it happened, and what the repercussions was behind it. We don't want anything to happen. We live in a burning building, people panic. This was some yes. time, so thank you so much. Okay. I think somebody was giving me some time. Okay. Uh, I have Mary Birdine. I'm sorry, I can't read the writing. B I R D E N A. Is she in the back? She, 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 she give me her time. Thank you. Okay. So, I'm sorry to interrupt. That's okay. We don't want to revisit that that happened because that's the one thing that nobody ever wants to have happen. We all want to walk in that building. We all want to walk out safely. We want our patients to walk in, and we want them to walk out safely. We are dealing with a difficult population of people. We are dealing with people who sometimes haven't had their medications for days, weeks, months, sometimes even years. And when we get them, we get them fresh off the streets, not having anything. 
not having anything to protect ourselves with them, they will sometimes assault their own family. And if they assault their own family, we're not related to them. What do you think they're going to do to us? We are trying to work along with our team of doctors. We have systems that we've had in place that have been dismantled with some of the processes that are being used. And when a mistake is made, nobody wants to look at it and say, oh, we tried this and it just didn't work. It's okay if it didn't work. But to not be willing to acknowledge that you tried it and it didn't work because you think that if you do that, it's gonna make you look like you didn't know what you were doing. That's wrong because we have to learn from our mistakes. As my sixth grade teacher used to say, you learn from your mistakes, you go forward, and then you figure out a way, how can we do this where we don't do this again? That's the process, not to make it look like you're wrong, I'm right. It's not a you're wrong, you're right situation. And just because somebody else came up with an idea where it didn't come from where you thought it should come from, doesn't make it right to say you're not going to try it or you're not going to use it or you wait five, ten years down the way and then all of a sudden you decide you want to do it at that time. And because the people who were there before are gone, so it makes it look like it's your idea. These are the types of things that are being done there and it's not fair and I would just like for the board to be aware that all that glitters is not gold. And that we are all in this for the long haul. We are a county facility. We serve the public. We serve anybody and everybody. If you are in Alameda County, you get on a 5150, whether you have insurance or not, you're coming there. Then our doctors will do the assessment. If you have private insurance, we will send you to where your insurance is, but you're coming to John George. Because we are the report and uh, I do have something very important tonight uh, and that is the recognition of a longtime board member and that is Kirk, Kirk Miller who is sitting to my right uh, who has served this board valiantly for three consecutive terms and Kirk if you're just a wait just one minute we have something for you hold on
start by reading the resolution. Resolution in gratitude and recognition of board service, whereas in order to best meet the health care needs of the residents of Alameda County, the California State Legislature approved in 1998 the independent Alameda County Medical Center, separate from the County of Alameda, and whereas in 2014, the medical center was renamed Alameda Health System, AHS, in light of its expanded mission of caring, healing, teaching, serving all. And whereas Mr. Kirk Miller was first appointed to serve the board December 19, 2006, at a time when vision, leadership, and action were required to restore the financial integrity and long-term health of AHS. And whereas Mr. Kirk Miller has served for a total of nine years of service between 2006 and 2015, during a pivotal time in which the organization expanded its facilities to the San Leandro and Alameda communities, acquired a system support center site for staff, and appointed a new CEO. And whereas Mr. Kirk Miller was elected president of the board in 2013 and also served as chairman of the executive committee, Audit and Compliance Committee and Finance Committee, and has been a member of the Strategic Planning Committee and Governance Committees. Whereas Mr. Kurt Miller has been a mentor and trusted colleague to other trustees, executive management, and employees, and whose tireless commitment and contribution and his kindness and good humor has been fundamental to the achievement of AHS's mission and growth. And whereas on November 24, 2015, Mr. Kirk Miller will retire from the board, having served the maximum number of terms permitted. Now, therefore, be it resolved, the board of trustees is grateful for Kirk Miller's leadership, which has permitted AHS to revere and honor its distinguished past while preparing for and celebrating a vibrant future. Resolved further, the Board of Trustees expresses its deepest thanks and appreciation for Kirk Miller's counsel, friendship, and years of service to AHS and the people of Alameda County, and wishes him and his family <coughs> the best of health and happiness in the years ahead. The foregoing resolution was passed and adopted by the Alameda Health System Board of Trustees this 24th day of November, 2015. Could I have a motion to approve the resolution? Approval. Those in favor? Aye. Thank, Thank you, you so you. much. Uh, we also have this gorgeous award for you, Kirk, and in giving it to you, um, my comment to you is that you exemplify to me grace under pressure. You have always been just so incredible, gentlemanly and gracious despite some very, very tough issues that you've dealt with over the years. Congratulations. Thank you. Any other comments? Okay, thank you. And that, that's my report, and now we can move to the CEO report. Good evening, trustees. Uh, well, uh, in the interest of time, uh, I will, I'll jump right into a few uh, updates uh, for you. Uh, I'll start with our access pillar, and, and I'm happy to share, uh, uh, as I have shared with you uh, in a different form, that um, 
uh, since our last meeting that the state and the federal government has agreed to a renewal of the 1115 waiver uh, for another five years. Um, we're really excited to uh, The waiver equates to uh, roughly $7.4 billion uh, uh, in combined federal and state funding over the five-year period, uh, which obviously is, is uh, something that Allegheny Health System, along with our other uh, public health counterparts throughout the state, uh, will participate in. Uh, the three main components of the program, uh, they're, they're, one is called the Prime Program, and this replaces what you heard of before. Uh, uh, that was the district or delivery system reform incentive program. Uh, Prime, because we need more acronyms in healthcare, uh, stands for uh, public hospital, not even, but, but this is what it, uh, that's what it's supposed to stand for. Public hospital redesign and incentives in Medi-Cal. Try to put that together. Uh, but that's the first part of the program. The other part is a global payment program. That one's focused really on the remaining uninsured in California, because as you know, the uh, Affordable Care Act went a long way to increasing the number of uh, insured uh, uh, Californians, largely through the Medi-Cal program, but also through Exchanges, uh, but that, but that, notwithstanding, there are still uh, those who remain uninsured. And this program is really designed around us providing uh, a comprehensive set of coordinated services to the remaining uninsured in the county. Now, the third one is actually an optional uh, part of the waiver for which all counties can participate, and we have already working with our managerial counterparts and uh, uh, county uh, uh, health services counterparts are planning to apply to, and it's called the Whole Person Care Pilot. Um, and the whole person care pilot is really a program that's designed to take a high-risk uh, population, so it's a subset of our population that uh, has maybe uh, a lot of risk factors and or a lot of comorbidities, and design a more integrated uh, uh, healthcare and social service safety net for them. So in this particular program, we'll be partnering with uh, um, traditional and non-traditional partners uh, to provide, again, a, a service for, for this uh, population. So we may, in addition to working and, and uh, the County Health Care Services Agency, Behavioral Health Services, and the others. Uh, we may be working with the housing programs, with transportation programs, with food uh, programs as well, again, to uh, try to uh, uh, provide a sustainable uh, patient-centric uh, service to, to this population. So it's an optional thing, and not all counties will, who apply may get awards for it, but uh, we in Alameda County have been intended or expressed an interest and intention on applying for that particular part of the program as well. So just wanted to let you know, we, we are at this particular stage, uh, because the state and the federal government were able to agree in principle to uh, a renewal before the deadline, right at the deadline actually, uh, they, the federal government agreed to extend the current waiver to the end of this calendar year, so December 31st, while we work on all the details between the state and the federal government on the implementation of this plan. So that work is happening right now. Uh, the last thing I'll share is we have uh, what we're calling a waiver implementation team. So it's a uh, combination of uh, clinical and non-clinical leadership who will be meeting with our counterparts around the state next Wednesday for a uh, half day, a little over a half day convening where we start to talk about the different uh, domains and uh, projects within that are incorporated into waiver and which ones of those will implement here in AHS. So, so more to come on that uh, uh, as we as we roll it out. But uh, obviously a great a great uh, um, moment and success for the state and for, for by extension our patients and us here in Alameda County. So, um, under sustainability, I won't talk a lot. Uh, uh, obviously, we, we, uh, we talk with the Finance Committee about the status of the interim agreement, the interim debt agreement with the county, uh, and you'll see under action items tonight a request to uh, authorize the uh, um, 
executive team to uh, not change any terms, of, uh, change any of the actual terms of the interim agreement, uh, but only to extend the deadline of the interim agreement while we continue to work with the auditor controller, uh, county administration, and health services, and the uh, chief administrative officer for the county on the terms that obviously will then come back to this board for a review, as well as then the board of supervisors ultimately for, for approval. So uh, uh, we had hoped to be at uh, the point of working on or finalizing the final terms of that uh, by the end of this, this year, uh, but my transition has been a little bit slower than, uh, than anticipated, and the county has thankfully been a little bit supportive of that, um, uh, largely as they indicate, uh, because we've been good at maintaining the, the, uh, um, the sense of urgency around this and maintaining our compliance with the current interim agreement. So, so they have expressed an interest and willingness to work with us to extend those terms while we work out the details, and uh, I, I indulge you and ask your, your uh, permission to, to allow us to do that. Uh, in the integration, I won't, I won't talk a lot about this one again, it's going to come before you tonight, uh, but we're very, very excited that we have reached a, a, a next sort of milestone in our implementation of the Alameda Health Partners, our physician hospital organization. Uh, we will uh, be going, we're, we're terming it going live, which is a little bit of a misnomer, but uh, what that means is uh, beginning of January, subject to this board's approval tonight, we will bring you on. Um, we'll be bringing on the first group of providers that will come into uh, the system, if you will, as uh, employees of Alameda Health Partners. We'll also be asking your approval of the uh, two uh, uh, agreements that we have that are sort of sharing or, or working agreements between Alameda Health System and Alameda Health Partner as, as an organization. So um, um, we're, we're excited that we've gotten to this point. It's been a lot of hard work on the part of uh, the board of AHP, which is a mixture of medical staff and, uh, uh, and clinical or administrative leadership. Uh, really, the, um, uh, what's the committee called? The uh, operations, council. operations council, sorry, which is largely, or actually all physician members of the organization who've been helping drive some of the uh, foundational uh, uh, policies and procedures that we'll put in place for this group. So, very excited about that and uh, look forward to seeing success with that group as we move forward. Uh, the last thing I'll mention actually is in the area of experience, and uh, uh, you've heard uh, uh, earlier in the public comments, and I think you'll hear a little bit more uh, about uh, the, the sort of recent experience at John George, but uh, certainly the experience has been happening over, over time. Uh, the, the census and the demand uh, from the county for mental health services has obviously increased over the years, um, and um, uh, because John George is, is one of the as we're saying, is the only psych emergency um, service in the county. Uh, a lot of that falls at the doorsteps of John George. And I want to say, take this opportunity to really thank and uh, applaud the staff at John George and the leadership at John George for really taking this on, I think, in a very meaningful way. Um, it is a great challenge, though, and I've spent some time there, not, not nearly as much as I'd like to, but uh, I'm not a great amount of time uh, um, overnight and on the weekends with the staff observe the situation, to hear firsthand what sort of challenges they're facing, uh, uh, and also to talk with the leadership about what sort of things we're doing, both internal to the system as well as external, externally with our partners at EMS and our, part, our partners with the Behavioral Health Care uh, uh, Services for the county to address this issue. Uh, as complicated as it is, and, and it's really about the, the demand, uh, a lot of these solutions uh, are somewhat long-term in nature. Uh, I hope uh, that you'll hear a little bit more this evening about what the 
county is doing because I think that's exciting uh, where they're trying to increase the number of crisis stabilization uh, beds and a lot larger through state funding. Uh, so that's really great. And as I mentioned with the waiver, we have a couple of initiatives in place um, uh, that may be a little bit more uh, in, uh, immediate, hopefully, over the course of the next year around uh, physical health and behavioral health integration and how we may provide services on a, a little bit more of a proactive basis there. I've also reached out to my counterparts in Contra Costa County. They also have uh, psych emergency services and uh, began to explore what their model is and see if there's some opportunities to take some learning lessons from them. Uh, I got that actually from talking to some of the staff at John George who also worked there uh, and thought that maybe there was some opportunities to, to learn something uh, from them. So we'll be doing that and I'll do that in, in, in partnership with the John George leadership. So I just wanted to share that and uh, uh, absolutely, uh, as I said, take the opportunity to say that you know, people are doing some really, really uh, difficult work there. Uh, uh, having looked at the indicators around quality and the indicators around safety in the area, uh, despite those challenges, are doing uh, the outcomes are, are good. Uh, as you heard earlier, the staff, the patients' uh, indication is, is still very high. I'm personally results uh, support that as well. Uh, but we're always looking for opportunities to improve and there are no shortage of them, uh, either in John George or in any of our facilities. So, so we'll continue to do that. Uh, the last thing I'll share in the, um, the experience space is, is I've been having a very, very interesting uh, time over the last couple of weeks uh, going around doing uh, employee forums at all of our places. Um, uh, we have 24 slated for uh, this, this cycle, and uh, so far we've done about 14 of them. So I've talked to uh, just about 700 employees have attended uh, these forums, which has been very, very refreshing. And we've had some really candid dialogue about you know, what's happened over the last three years, uh, areas where people think things are going well, and where there's some opportunity. And uh, I invite and encourage uh, people to speak very uh, candidly and, and forthright. And uh, in some cases, I haven't had to do that. Uh, people will be doing much, but, but it's been very engaging. And, and I think that uh, uh, I'm, I'm very uh, optimistic about uh, the partnership that we can continue to forge with the staff and, and uh, really work towards uh, making AHS um, that place that we have, have, have uh, outlined in our vision where we're working to promote wellness and eliminate disparities and you know, uh, really provide excellent care to the diverse populations that we serve. So with that, I'll, I'll yield and, and thank you. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll move on to the written report, which is the medical staff report, and we don't have our doctors here with us tonight. Um, we move their reports to the beginning of the agenda, encouraging them to come. But um, so, Dr. Walker, you're going to have to give us any, any kind of uh, wisdom that you would like to impart <laughs> or updates on what's been happening in the medical areas. I think the reports that the, each of the chiefs of staff provide goes over the credentialing process, or, or the individuals rather, that have gone through the credentialing process at our three different medical centers. You get some sort of global information about quality efforts. Uh, I will say that we're still struggling to try to get some uniformity to our to our reports that come to the board, but right now you still, <coughs> still see the product of three very independent medical staff. And I'd be happy to take any questions that you have from the reports. Uh, well, what's the progress on peer review? I didn't notice that that was in we're approaching it very gingerly. Um, it, it has a lot to do with developing relationships with the other two medical staffs. As you know, they, it, it will require the independent decision of each of the three medical staffs to, to reconfigure their peer, peer review process. So several of us are beginning meetings with our counterparts 
um, at the other two facilities and had a, a very preliminary discussion about what it would look like to begin to, to do sharing around, around peer review. I think wisely we're trying to start with the pain points. So in other words, some of our colleagues at some of the other hospitals have very small departments, one or two people. It's very difficult to do peer review when you've got two people. So if we could pool those individuals with the clinicians at, at the other sites, it starts to get a, a critical mass. It could be much more objective in terms of doing the peer review. That's kind of where we are. Thank you. Any other questions? Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, So there's a comment in um, regarding ambulatory and the difficulty in improving patient experience, and I was wondering if you could just expand on that. Like, what are some of the challenges you're approaching to? I think a lot of that has to do with the, the, the operational challenges, whether it's scheduling, uh, actually bringing patients into the room, keeping appointments on time, so the no-show rates they struggle with on an ongoing basis, it can sometimes exceed 50%. Um, and so efforts to try to address that are some of the things that, that impact patient satisfaction scores. And some very pragmatic things like parking and the ease with which they can get in to see their, their physician. Appointment times, I mean, it can be, if you call for a new appointment right now, it can be several months before you actually can get an appointment to see a primary care doctor. So those are some of the things that drive the patient satisfaction scores in the long direction. Okay, and our, it sounds like a lot of stuff is I'm sure there are lots of issues ongoing to try to address that. Indeed. Is this guy here? Uh, guy is, is, is the administrator over, the, over the, the ambulatory division, and so they have a number of efforts that are going on currently in terms of trying to address those things. Is there anything in particular, Guy, that you'd like to, to highlight there? I can't hear you, Joe. Oh, maybe. I, I don't want to belabor it, so perhaps just when scheduling permits in the future, I, I would personally be interested if anyone else is. Okay. Yeah. An update on inventory up to Sure. Thank you. Thank you. Anything else, Dr. Yeah. Okay. Then let's move on to uh, item D, the discussion. And David, um, I assume that um, Rebecca Gebhardt is here, yeah, or, and we are going to have a, an update on the FOIA report. Yes. I'd like to introduce Rebecca Gebhardt, uh, who is the finance director at uh, Healthcare Service Agency, and uh, HCSA is actually the entity that charted the report and uh, uh, presented it to uh, Rebecca on behalf of the county. So Welcome. Thank you. Um, just a little bit of background. Uh, the county, the Board of Supervisors asked the Health Department to engage in an assessment of the financial and operating uh, condition of AHS in 2014, summer, fall, and we worked on that. It took a little bit longer than we had anticipated. We worked on it. Um, we engaged Toyon and Associates, which is a, a contractor for the hospital and very familiar with hospital finance operations. We actually got permission from AHS to engage that contractor. And Nancy Katz, who works for that contractor, is also known as a statewide public hospital expert. So she produced the report in uh, January, and reports were provided to our Board of Supervisors and to you. And then a couple of months ago, your board asked if the county could do a progress report and re-engage with Nancy on um, looking at the work that AHS has, has done in the intervening six or seven months and come back to you with a report. 
So my report's going to be very short because we're not done. Um, sorry, it's 100% the county. We have had competing priorities and largely having to do with the AHS county governance series, which um, I and Dr. Clannon, who also worked on the Toyon report with me, were tapped by Supervisor Chan to work on. So um, I don't have the material for you tonight. Nancy Cotts and I are actually working on it now. We anticipate being done in December and having a final report for your board in January. Our Board of Supervisors has also asked for a report and we will plan to take it to them in February. What I can tell you is that we have been working, we've just started working in the past maybe three weeks, um, working with the CFO and his staff. Um, and we're going into, you, you've all read the Toyon report, you know it's a fairly detailed report, and we're going into a little bit more detail on the actual progress. And we're having interviews, but we're also kind of requesting the reports. If new reports have been developed, if new business processes have been developed, we're asking to see those, and we're asking to interview staff. So it's a little bit more of a detailed progress report rather than just asking questions and getting answers. We're asking questions and looking to validate. So that's the kind of uh, depth that you can expect when we, can come, when we come back to you. I can also tell you that um, the Toyo report spelled out the need for significant changes and um, what Nancy is seeing is that significant changes have been made. The staff have worked very hard in the intervening seven months, and I think some of you, I think you've seen that in some of the revenue increases. You've actually seen evidence of additional revenue coming in through these efforts. However, there, you know what problems were surfaced, so there's still going to be significant work to be done, and we hope to be able to work with David to spell that out in some detail so that you all are able to track on it and so that the CEO is able to track on it. I can also tell you that staff has been completely cooperative. They have referred us to other staff. They have referred us to the materials. Um, there's no delays or resistance on the part of staff in terms of cooperating, um, cooperating with this. So, I regret not having a substantive report for you, but we'll have something for you in January. Well, I think there's comfort knowing that um, that the county is in fact working on it and that it's more in depth than just a superficial, so we appreciate that as well. And we'll look forward to your full report in January and we'll make certain that you're on the, on the agenda. Okay. Thank you for your time tonight. My pleasure. We'll move to discussion item number two, the Alameda Health Partners, and this is a pillar for integration. Uh, thank you, Trustee Lawrence. As Bill Vecchio mentioned, um, we're ready to be alive with Alameda Health Partners. <clears throat> it does require the approval of two contracts. Uh, so I'm here tonight to give you a very brief uh, introduction to this. Um, I do want to recognize the um, efforts of Brenda Taylor, who couldn't be here tonight. She's with Carolina getting ready for Thanksgiving, but she's the one who actually has done the uh, majority of the work. Although many people have been involved, I think Brenda deserves uh, a large part of the credit. Um, <clears throat> Alameda Health Partners is designed to be the physician delivery vehicle for 
uh, Allegan Health System going forward. So Allegan Health Partners is a, um, uh, I guess you call it a wholly owned uh, subsidiary, for lack of a better word, of uh, Allegan Health System. Um, the um, board of directors is, uh, so the board reports to AHS, but you can see a familiar cast of characters on board. Uh, some names you know, some may be new, and then here's the Physician Operations Council. Uh, the thing you'll notice is that the, the primary representation here is physicians, because this is really truly meant to be the vehicle that our physicians can use to uh, have a voice, to um, get resources for their particular operations, to focus on their issues, and um, <clears throat> um, it's designed that way, and we're, we're very excited that it's, uh, it's ready to go. So the, um, here's some of the business objectives. Uh, we want physician leadership, influence, accountability. Uh, we want to improve professional or physician revenues. That's one of the primary vehicles. And just having this entity separate from AHS in and of itself, we believe will improve um, reimbursement for physician services. Um, also, it's going to be a model for payer contracting where our physicians can have a um, recognized um, entity out of the market that can contract with payers, which is very important to be able to do these space contracts. And uh, finally, it allows us to focus on, um, you know, this is just a physician entity, so the physician compensation benefit package can be tailored toward uh, their needs. Um, <clears throat> now, the, the, there's two contracts, and one is called the Intercompany Services Agreement, and the other is the Master Professional Services Agreement. So. Essentially, what we're saying is that uh, we're going to stand up this company. Most of the staff work, finance, IT, HR, legal, quality, strategy, will be purchased from Allegheny Health System. So we don't have to add staff. We're just going to simply rent the people we have to this other entity. That's the intercompany services agreement. Um, that allows HP to operate. And then what HP does is it provides physicians to AHS and its operating affiliates. That's the two things. Now, the important thing to realize is that this is budget neutral. <clears throat> All of these costs are already there. We're simply going to be breaking the physician side out so that we can get a much better view. And you'll begin to be able to see that as well, because we'll be able to start reporting on um, <clears throat> HP as a separate entity. You can see all the physician activities separate from of the hospitals. Okay, and that is, I think, essentially it. I didn't want to get into too much detail, but we're certainly <clears throat> happy to answer any questions. Uh, I think you said that you thought just the fact of this entity would improve maybe reimbursement rates, physician fees. Why is that the case? Um, <clears throat> because currently, um, um, most hospitals in California do not bill for physicians because there's something in California called the corporate practice of medicine uh, limitations. It says you can't. Now, Alameda Health Systems has, has an exception to that because we're an authority. But <clears throat> the fact is that most payers are not set up to send process physician bills from a hospital-type entity. They know how to do it from a medical group-type entity. But what happens with AHS is many times the bills get lost, they get combined, they get um, discounted, and the appropriate reimbursement does not come back to the system. 
when we, we can bill separately through AHP with its own uh, provider identification number, we will get paid correctly. And we'll have much better focus on what we're actually getting paid. It's essentially the same question. If the billable services being provided are the same, why would you be able to collect more from the other? So, I think. Trustee Hernandez. Trustee Hernandez. I have a question about how the community member is being recruited or selected. So, what are the criteria? What is the process for finding? Uh, so, actually, there's kind of a, a couple of approaches. So, as you know, our medical staff uh, model is, is mixed right now. Uh, the AHP board, and uh, under consultation from the Operations Council, has elected to have a some somewhat of a blend as well. So, uh, there will be physician members of, of AHP who will be employed, and there will be some physician services uh, that they provide for, that they'll contract for. So, um, right now, We've only brought in the first group of uh, physicians who are being brought in are uh, employees of EHS, so sort of natural and, and um, uh, uncomplicated uh, uh, process to transfer them over. And uh, many of those providers, if not all of them, actually, when they were recruited to be EHS employees, uh, part of their contract indicated that if and when this organization was stood up, that they would be employed by this entity. So that's sort of the process for them. The others will be a combination, or largely driven by the Operations Council in partnership with, and one of the agreements speaks to this. So as the organization says, we, you know, we, we identify a need for physician services, HP as an entity sets the parameters for what sorts of criteria that they use to uh, evaluate uh, physicians' practices, quality, all those sorts of things, uh, then goes out to recruit those, those providers, sets up agreements with them, and we proceed that way, but it's largely that's one of the reasons we're creating this. Uh, that process will be largely physician-driven uh, uh, as opposed to administratively driven. But there is an empty spot there for community. Oh, I'm sorry, you're talking about the board? Yes. Oh, sorry, I thought you were talking about the physician providers. Uh, yeah, right now, so actually maybe Mike uh, can speak a little bit more to this, but uh, right now the board, uh, because it's a not-for-profit entity, there's the, uh, the, the rule around Disinterested, uh, disinterested members. Uh, I don't know that as a board right now we have a process in place to go out and recruit for the vacant uh, uh, position or the vacant uh, uh, board member positions right now. Uh, what I can share though is uh, there is uh, in the bylaws for the organization a, a current requirement that the physician membership of the organization is um, employees of the entity, which is a little tough because until January 1st, they won't be employees of the entity. So we sort of uh, uh, pseudo uh, use uh, people who are employees of the organization. Um, that's a small segment of our, our position for, uh, force. And so as a board, we're having some discussions around how we might evolve that goal forward. So I don't know if you want to add more to that. No, you know, I think one thing that I would add to that is that the, you know, the actual decisions about the positions, you know, that will be under the overall auspices of the board. Excuse me. So, <coughs> other than the approval authority of you know, the particular contracts, that's the rule that the board would be playing in that. And I think it's mostly the internal structure, which is going to, as the deal says, you know, determine the qualifications, you know, the recruitments, those types of things. 
right right now how many are in the AHP organization and what is the goal to the maximum number, not maximum, your optimum number? <clears throat> Currently the plan is to bring seven positions into employment in January. Uh, but it's important to realize that we actually intend to run all contracts, position contracts through here so that the, this board will actually have oversight over position activities, whether they're employed or contracted. In general, there will be a few exceptions. Um, we think it's really up to the board at that point and, and realize we haven't established a real uh, board process yet to deal with key issues like, you know, what what is the criteria for employing versus contracting and what what deliberation should occur before making those decisions. But we would expect by the end of the first year to have perhaps forty or fifty positions employed, but to have the majority of the contracts running through here so we can see the the activity that's running through charges and collections and what the costs are. Okay. Um, I'm still a little uncomfortable that we don't have that more clearly spelled out. Um, so for another time, um, I would like to understand how that community person is going to be recruited and what we're doing to make sure that person is reflective of the patient population that we have. I'm not saying it's going to be a patient. I'm saying that it needs to be Sorry, thank you. Fair point. Uh, we, we can bring that back. I apologize. I don't really uh, know that part of the bylaws that, that well, but we'll, we'll look at that and, and we can report back to this board. It, it's spelled out. We have two documents, the bylaws. We also have the bylaws. We also have policies and procedures. And so the intent was to have as, much, as many physicians as possible representing the board. But we also wanted to make sure we had disinterested parties that represent the community and the diversity of our community across Alameda and the county. So we contemplated and deliberated for quite some time using a group of physicians to build those policies and procedures in the bylaws um, that would then represent the board. So Kathleen Clanton, who's here, is one of the first community directors. We thought we really nailed it because not only is she an interested party, she's also a physician, and she also um, has an affiliation with the county. So we're looking for people who really can represent the interest of the community that we serve. And so um, it is very well spelled out, but not to the extent that we don't have flexibility in the appointments. Uh, I just, this might be a little dumb question, but who, who decides how much funding AHP receives? Do we decide that? Um, it's intended to be a negotiation um, between the parties. So, for example, if um, the Chief Administrative Officer of Highland needed a physician, it's envisioned that he would go to the executive at Alameda Health Partners and say, I'd like you to recruit this type of specialist for me. Um, there would then be a um, performance analysis of the likely um, revenue that that position would generate and costs compared to fair market value. And now the fair market value process in place to make sure we pay, uh, compensate people appropriately. And it's that net amount difference that uh, there would be a contract in that, that PSA that Highland would essentially pay Alameda Health Partners the uh, difference between what the position is going to 
generated its total compensation package. What if we didn't have the money to do that? Could we, do we have the right to say we can't give you the money? Yes, um, he absolutely has the right to say I can't afford to pay that. The, that that would be a negotiation between those. Uh, so he used the word negotiation, which would seem to indicate there's some ability to require us to give them the money. That's my whole question. Do we have the, are we in any manner diluting our power to determine where the money we get, like from Measure AA or from other sources, as to where it gets spent by this agreement? Not at all. Not and that's in the agreement? It's in this relationship that we're establishing? Um, well, the agreements don't refer to Measure A because it's, it's AHP has no authority to access those funds. Um, what's envisioned is um, AHP will do things as directed by the rest of the system uh, to recruit physicians of certain specialties and ensure that they're paid appropriately and ensure that we maximize the uh, professional revenue that they can generate so that the net expenses as well as possible. But all of the expenses uh, involved in these two companies are already there today. So I'm sorry, I didn't hear what you just said. Already, we're, we're already incurring all of these expenses because all of the physician activities that embedded primarily at Highland, but also at the other businesses. Yeah, but, but, it's, but we have control of that. And yes. when we bring in this new entity, I just want to be sure we still have control. Mm -hmm. I think, um, if, if I could try and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think I understand your question. So, David, when we get board approval for the budget for the organization, we are operating within that budget when we work with AHP to uh, provide services for the physician services for the organization, right? That is correct. So that would mean then that essentially the budget that the uh, board, that this board approves for the organization becomes the driver for how we um, uh, acquire resources from this entity. Yes, ACB is a subsidiary of HS and budgets will come to this board for approval. As part of our annual budget? Yes. And we'll be providing monthly financial reporting on our activities. Jensen. Um, that this is to all of these points to and to your earlier comment about the contracts tonight. We're going to approve contracts for physician services or extend some contracts for physician services. And so, or, as I understand it, then in the future, these contracts will go through AHP. Is that correct? These contracts, for example, with Rad Care, with um, UCSF, and with Sutter's Bay Medical? Um, they, they actually would wind up going through both corporations. So, for example, if um, Highland, again, wanted to uh, sign a contract with AHP in excess of a million dollars, it would have to come to this board, and of course, AHP will be reviewing that as well. So, to Trustee Barney's point, it, it, there still is a threshold above which this board will have to approve contracts. But on the other hand, my question then is, so um, would this board have any authority or any involvement in, for example, the contract extension um, for $11,620 or $1 million, $1.5 million. So all of these are, are over a million. So in all of these instances, this board would have the approval authority. For the contracts tonight, as I understand it, yes, because we have right. the requirement that uh, the, that they have to come before this board. So if we're working in agreement with HB, that 
that's enough goodness for it if it's if it crosses that threshold and, and uh, if they're doing it then it, uh, it goes to their board. Will it come from AHP? I mean, will AHP and and this is fine with me. I'm just trying to see get kind of envision how it'll work. Will AHP determine that we need a new hospitalist contract or that there's what working with um, with our medical directors and and with um, CEO and management staff decide well, we need we want to either ex either continue the contract with our hospitals for example or have a new group of hospitalists at all sites one site whatever would that be coming through to this board through AHP uh, it's envisioned that there'd be um, um, sort of a joint operating committee uh, separate from the operations council the joint operating committee between the hospital operators and, and the AHP representatives that would look at those issues and make a determination on for example should we take the hospital's contract out to bed? Should we do something different? Yeah, it's part of the spirit of the agreement to, to have shared governance between the physician leadership of the AHP and, and the administrative leadership of the organization to, to come up with what are those needs and then uh, for them to deliver on it, but then for us to procure the services for them. And I appreciate Trustee Varney's comments about the fiduciary authority and responsibility. And my, concern is more about our um, community authority and responsibility to continue or not continue arrangements or uh, contracts with, with groups that have been providing services at our facilities for however long. So that's just a comment, but thanks for your information. Justin Jim. And I'm going to just kind of riff off both of your comments. <laughs> I, I think one of the concerns I think trustees Jensen and Barney have is you know when, when you create a when you create a separate entity, there's always an opportunity for that entity to, to come to life of its own, make its own decisions, say, well, we're going to do this, not that, and whatever. So there's no way to guarantee against that, other than to the only way to guarantee against that possibility is to not have it in the first place. So I'm, I'm fine with this, but I think the concern is let's make sure that there's a good constructive alignment and that, you know, and that they, um, as opposed to, because I've seen situations where all of a sudden you have two separate entities that don't exactly see eye to eye. Or, right. And that's a very unpleasant experience for all, and that's what we, I think we all want to avoid. <laughs> I agree. And I, I think that, that that's my interpretation of what that question has to remind That's my point. So, so great point. Um, one of the things I, I think is, is uh, probably worth clarifying, well, two points. One is um, the creation of the physician hospital organization is to really try, to, which has already been done, you know, as, just to clarify, uh, but really try to create greater alignment between the physician enterprise and the organization. So, so while there will be different arrangements still within that physician enterprise, having, the, having it be physician-led is, is in its, in, in this, at least in its concept, uh, the goal is to have uh, uh, a more united uh, voice and one partner for which to deal with uh, versus right now we deal with all those different relationships and we just kind of want to consolidate them under one entity, again, position that, that helps us with that. Uh, so, so, so there is a goal to kind of create less of an opportunity to be contract with someone and they want to go work with or do something that is uh, not necessarily in your best interest, but as well for a number of reasons. The last thing I say is, and correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, 
AHS is the sole corporate member of the AHP uh, uh, board as a, as a uh, mobile owner. And so, uh, obviously, we hope it never got to this point. So, you want to, you know, we want these uh, uh, relationships to, to proceed in a very collegial fashion. But I think uh, a reserved power for you as a board is the solution of this entity if you feel uh, yeah, that that's warranted. Or go get a new board. Right. Or, or the solution of the board. Yeah. I, I think that's right. Yeah, which would be undesirable. And I should, right. and I should say, I'm not picking on you know medical. I've, I've seen this occur in telecommunications, sure. and consumer goods. So, yeah, no, I, I, I hear you. I mean, I think part of the reason, uh, or part of one of the reasons why we we have multiple levels of this, we don't need the joint operating committee, but there also is, as you can see on this board, uh, great representation from the administrative leadership, who's completely accountable to this board, uh, and the physician membership. Yeah, no, I think there's a great opportunity to be very constructive and positive and, and, and create. Yeah, but they always exist. That but but possibly. yes, it's always. I understand. Yeah. Fair point. Trustee Barney. Well, again, my, my point was somewhat, somewhat consistent with Jim's, but it also goes to a later item on the agenda, which is item E, which is a contract extension. Um, I'm, I'm trying to see. It's whatever it is, the item where we are going to extend for six months our agreement, interim agreement with the county to provide funding and operate the hospital system. Uh, I do believe that we, sh again, uh, the staff's doing a good job. It's an easy subject. It's hard to get resolved and it's moving target and all those other things. But I do think we ought to know and be able to explain to the board of supervisors saying that uh, the, the explanation of what we're doing for this extension is basically it doesn't really say what we've resolved and what we haven't resolved, but what it does say is that there are items we have not resolved. And I think that all we're about... Trustee Barney, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not tracking you. Are, are you referring to this? Oh, yeah, I am. Yes, I am. Well, let me, I, let me leave you alone. Okay, I'm sorry. Yeah. I, did, I yeah. wasn't following. I, I just think that before we get too far down the road on this subject that we're talking about right now, that we ought to be sure that the people who control our funding are comfortable with this process and procedure. And what I'm trying to say is that we as a board sitting here tonight do not necessarily know the nature of the discussions that are going on between our hospital and the Board of Supervisors concerning future funding. If this subject has been discussed or not discussed, and is this one of the items that needs to be discussed and resolved uh, before we can enter into a permanent agreement with the county for additional funding? Maybe AHP yeah. discussion. So, could you enlighten us on what kind of conversation? I know, well, I know, yes, Dr. Callum is. Does, does is that the, what you're talking about? You know, does the county know that we are considering doing this agreement that we're talking about here tonight with, between these two organizations? Does they, do they understand the financial impacts of that? Um, yes, yes, they're aware. We've told them that it's budget neutral. It doesn't change the cash forecast. 
and if anything, it should make it better because we expect to operate more efficiently under the new structure. It, it has not been raised as an issue in relation to the uh, permanent agreement discussions. And I know that Dr. Camlin, you know, years ago um, started this, at least when I first came on the board, this conversation of, about this organization and the development of it has been going on for like three years or so, maybe longer. Um, and I know now that she sits at the county office, there's much more communication relative to what's been going on here. So I feel pretty confident, and I know that I have had a conversation myself with Supervisor Chan, um, not in depth, but certainly around the idea of, of this organization being being in the making. So they are aware of it. To what degree, I can't, I can't respond to that, but maybe the rest of you can. I can add more than, than what David has already said, but I think it's important to say that, particularly in this this first year, this this uh, these agreements that we're asking the board to approve don't alter the budget for this organization at all. This is all budget neutral. Essentially, what's happening is a transfer of, of accountabilities and expenses, I should say, uh, within this entity are, are being moved to this new entity, or this entity that's already in place, consistent with the plan uh, for how it would actually operate. I'm still confused myself, and and I know that a rose by any other name. So this looks to me like the formation of a union, and I don't want to say, but let's say a professional organization, because I know that it's not necessarily a union, but it has the markings of that that relationship between a an entity that is employees and the hospital. So at what point does the board, who, who in fact has the veto power over decisions relative to, to this organization? Is it the, when you can't reach agreement, what happens? When you say, so I guess I'm, I'm wanting a little bit more clarification. When you say the decisions of this. Financial, the, the payment, the, the price of a, an individual physician, Cost, oh, I see. So, yeah. so both of these agreements. Correct me if I'm wrong, David. But both of these agreements. You notice I say that a lot, right? Correct me if I'm wrong. <laughs> but both of these agreements uh, uh, are, are exclusive or non-exclusive agreements. So, so the services that they procure from us, the back office services that David was talking about. Uh, if that board in that group believed that we weren't doing a good job at revenue recovery or weren't doing a good job at some of the contracting pieces that that they felt from us, then they, they reserve the right to say we're going to go use somebody else. Uh, similarly, though, and, and in both these cases, neither of us would want this to be the case, but if we believe that this entity was not doing a job at recruiting physicians that we needed for the organization or couldn't do it at the rate at which we could afford, subject to our budget, then we reserve the right to go out and contract you. But again, neither one of us want to do those yeah, things, right. but as an entity, we reserve the uh, ability to do so, so. So we would always, as a organization be operating within the authority granted by this board. So, so I just want to, I hope that clarifies the limit. Any other questions? I'd just like to put a, a good word in for the concept. Um, it, it seems to me that the imperative going forward is, is going to be a closer relationship, uh, a more actively engaged 
doing of the work with physicians and that this is a good step toward creating the platform to permit that to occur. And, and it's been a long time in the making, so congratulations to everybody who's worked so hard for so long. And I know it, it started some three, three years ago, three and a half, and it's so it is a lot of work. And I think we, we all recognize the, the importance of it. And the Physician Council, some of those who are just our stars in the organization, so we're lucky to have Okay, um, and, and there are no more questions. I'd like to move to uh, item number three, the financial update, monthly update. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I'll give you uh, a quick update. Uh, October, we did um, actually publish the statements yesterday. I don't know if they've been formally distributed before yet, but it has been going. Good. Um, so we're reporting uh, uh, operating income of $5.8 million uh, for the month. Uh, that's well in excess of budget. Um, and what occurred is that um, all of the indicators sort of went positive in the month. It was uh, very busy from a patient activity standpoint, sort of across the board. The uh, revenue yield, uh, which I, I measure by uh, things like um, the collection ratio or the net patient revenue per adjusted patient day, were all strong. Uh, gross charges were very strong, in particular the um, physician revenue increased quite a bit. So we're attributing that to the introduction of this ingenious med um, electronic charge entry product for doctors. Um, expenses were, you know, over budget, uh, the fixed budget, but on a volume adjusted basis, they were, they were pretty much right in line, so improved. Um, and we made a uh, particular adjustment, favorable adjustment for Sam and Amber because their cash collections have been uh, consistently better than what we had been booking as net revenue, so we actually increased the estimate of um, what they're earning. Um, and I want you to know that I'm, I'm, I, I lose sleep over the financial saying, you know, did I miss something? Is this right? Can it be true? I'm tracking cash. I open cash every day. If there's a variance, I reconcile it. I think this represents reality for October. It was a good month. Okay, we're still behind year to date, but it was a good month. And uh, we should take credit for that. Uh, year to date, we have now even a margin of percent uh, compared to the budget of five. Um, we've talked about the county relationship. We remain in compliance. Uh, I do have a new NMB forecast, which I'll go over in a minute. The um, performance improvement initiatives continue. We still have, as, as Rebecca mentioned, we, we've done a lot, but there's so much remaining work to be done in revenue cycle. I mean, I really feel like it's going to be three years before it's, it's to the point where we can say, you know, it's best in class. Um, on the, um, the Better Two project, uh, we, we do we have just signed off on the uh, labor savings, and so now we have uh, worked about 14 million in uh, books of savings. That program doesn't get them either. Trustee Commission, I have a question. Finish the paper. Okay, uh, and then um, uh, just to let you know that the uh, uh, you did see a draft of the model for long-term planning. We're now uh, kicking off sitting down with the um, operations teams from the business units because that, that, that product has a module for each of the business units, you know, Highland and Fairmont and John George. And we want to engage those teams in the long-term planning assumptions and uh, also their, their needs, particularly capital needs particularly. Um, so that's going on and that's all being done in 
process through the EM budget. Go ahead. So um, I just wanted to sort of a question slash comment. So where you say that you know through October year to date we're you know, um, operating income for up to seven point five million dollars versus nine point eight. I believe that in the last finance committee that you reported that there was a two point eight or two point nine million dollar um, accounting adjustment, sort of an unbudgeted accounting adjustment for uh, pension, correct? Yes. yes. And, and so the 725 includes that. That includes it. So if we had not had that, it would have been better. Then I think we would have actually been at $10.3 million, so slightly better than the budget. Yeah. So I think that's one of the things that, you know, management should probably keep track of is, you know, major material, um, Items that were not, you know, that were sort of out of the scope of the original budget, because I think it puts them in important context. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. And then I guess with respect to the financial planning, so this is this is a core, this is a core interface with the strategic plan, right? It absolutely is. Yeah. And it's kind of it informs the strategic plan, and the strategic plan informs it. So it's kind of going in a circle. But yes. I think we're going to be going through this more in finance committee over the next couple of sessions, and also bringing it back to the board. Right. The work we're going to be doing in December is to, to give you a product that the, the management teams have seen yep. and have bought into. Okay. Um, yes, I'm sorry, Tristan. Yeah. Um, could you speak a little bit to? Um, I was just going to ask you first about an item here, and then I was going to ask you to please comment on what's keeping you awake at night about the budget yeah. <laughs> that you presented. But you've got something here on purchase services that it seems consistently to kind of always be over budget. And I just wonder, can we do something about planned purchases that would not let that happen? Yeah, we're looking at it. And, you know, um, the, um, the variances in purchase services are primarily in two areas. One is um, revenue cycle, and the other is information technology. And we're, we're looking at those, but we're, we're putting money in the year, uh, what is, uh, you know, yeah, what is we, the uh, we, we blend to that we start around three and about six, but to average five. Okay, so we're only a couple yeah. months. Yeah, no, I mean, on that curve, are you pretty close to uh, where you would expect to be to ultimately achieve the uh, margin you're yeah, seeking, or at least the the final margin in that month, if not for the whole year. Yeah, we, we were lagging in the first quarter, but, but this is a big, big pickup and, and very good trends. And, um, you know, it's hard to pick volume, but there was a clear gain in labor productivity in the month, which we attribute to the work of um, the nursing leadership. And the finance committee saw a presentation from them uh, last week. Um, and there were Expense improvements at the ambulatory clinics. So those are those are you know professionally looking at the numbers. I'm saying, oh, that's that's a noticeable positive trend. That's hard work that somebody has done. So that, that's I was encouraged. Okay. 
yes, I, I actually do lay awake sometimes at night <laughs> thinking about what have I missed. So. Can I just comment? Oh, I'm sorry. No, please go ahead. Um, uh, just from the finance chair perspective, I mean, you know, through the, fir the first three months of the, when we look the first three months of the year, I was getting a little nervous, to be honest. Um, but so this is, I mean, this erases all of that nervousness and more. Um, so, you know, October's really banner, was really banner month, this, you know, from my personal perspective. Um, so, hurrah. Uh, and then just very quickly, the heat map has a lot more green on it this month than it did last month. So we're seeing good trends, volumes are good, as I said. Everything sort of went one way, which produced the results. But it shows what can happen with the organization when everybody pulls in the same direction. David, if I recall, what, what we had talked about is that there was going to be a mid-year adjustment to the budget, and we were going to come back, because I remember the process that came in place for the budget. It just came in. We didn't really have a chance to talk it through. It was there, and I think it came one night and approved. And so what we had agreed to do was to watch it for a while and then come back and, and have the budget presented again. Um, with with modifications. While I'm, I join Jim in the recognition of October, it doesn't send a trend to me since July, August, and September were not like October. And so when can, when do you see the, uh-oh, let's make the adjustment and bring things? Um, because I think if you wait until March or April, then it becomes a little late. So what are you thinking? Well, we actually, uh, I can't remember if this meeting or not, but actually in October we brought back a preliminary um, review of the budget. We actually identified quite a few things that were we knew were different. I wasn't in that meeting. There were some pros and some cons. And we talked about making just adjustment at that point, but I think the sense of the committee was, you know, we know about it, but let's not get in the habit of making changes to the budget just to do that, and let's watch it and see. And I can certainly come back in, in January, February, and go through the exercise again, and we can see how close we are, and then the board can make a decision whether they want it to adjust. Well, e even if the finance committee looks at looks at something a little more comprehensive, mm -hmm. you know, seeing seeing the trends. Um, yeah. That's not to deflate or to minimize the work that I know is going on because uh, I have seen some incredible, incredible progress made. But um, we want to make certain that we don't get ourselves in a bind and find at the end of the spring that that we're in trouble. So, um, okay. Maybe January-ish is a good time because that's also when we're going to get the first read on a long-term plan. So I think that. Okay. go together in planning worlds. Um, there's, there's one last thing I want to cover. Um, so this is the, um, so here's the spike. We had, we had been thinking there was going to be a spike in our NMB balance in Jan January. And then we got some good news on the 2015 waiver that instead of um, having a big outlay, it was only going to be like $2.3 well, we just got the instructions on how to make those payments, and they're broken into three pieces. And unfortunately, they're starting with us making a $17 million payment um, the week of December 8th.
and then over the next two or three weeks we get most of it back. So the result of that is we're now going to have a spike in the week of December 8th up to about 193, and we're the team is looking at our cash outlays and trying to you know, cut back here and there to make sure we don't hit the limit. But we wanted you to be aware of that. Uh, after that happens, we look really great for the rest of the year. Um, uh, that's coming right up. We have advised the county, so they're aware of it. Everybody's watching it closely. If we think we're going to come closer, I will certainly let everybody know. But at this point, we're pretty confident that we will get through this and, and then uh, be okay for the rest of the year. Thank you, David. Um, go back to that graph. Thank you. So, yeah, I mean, even a week ago, that spike in that graph with, with the arrow above it wasn't there. Right. And so I think that's, um, so I, my comment, what I wanted to comment is that I really, really appreciate in the draft of the agreement that we have is the ability, you know, is that there is some flexibility um, for us to go over because that would allow, you know, um, it would allow, you know, we could easily have a situation where we have a temporary spike above because of just timing issues. So having that flexibility is really important. I appreciate yeah, that. Yeah, and there, there were just surprises that we didn't know this, so we could go exactly. the instructions. And, okay. and it shows up in, I think your ABLE staff may well figure out how to make that all go away within a week. But something else might come up. Thank you. Thank you. Um, board, we're going to move to the consent item. And before we begin discussion, could I have a motion to approve the consent calendar? Consent agenda? Yes, moved. Thank you. A second? I'll second that. OK. Um, the, the item number B, board, I want to bring that to your attention because you'll notice something on it. It, said, it says ratification. And this is the agreement with the county sheriff's office. and. Uh, Mike, would you mind uh, responding to that? Because I, it, it came before the finance committee. There were four of us there. Uh, but we had an issue of calendar mix. And so, uh, Mike, if you will explain that. Yes, and there was a procedural requirement where the, the county was considering that agreement for approval by its board of supervisors today. They needed a copy of the signed agreement in hand uh, to present to their board. Um, and so I consulted Trustee um, Lawrence uh, based upon the Finance Committee's approval and recommendation to this board that this board could ratify that agreement by this action here today. So. Okay. The, the other option was to bring to bring forth uh, an executive committee of emergency meeting, and I thought, given that there were four people who had already voted for it, it's, it's a routine item that I asked for your ratification. So that's the explanation. On uh, are there any other questions, uh, including in the consent calendar or also policies and procedures? I just had one small request with respect to policies and procedures. Not now, not now. But at some point, I, 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 read, the, I read the letter, and, and so policies like this is a sort of a very thin summary, but I'd just like to understand a little bit more at some point. Um, principles, you know, the, the, the principles that we need to worry about. So as trustees, we have Why, some... you're, we've got all that down, don't we? Don't we, Karen? Um, and so we are happy. As a matter of fact, I am going to refer you to Karen Bradshaw, 
and she will be able to answer that question for you. Awesome. Okay. Um, not but, now, but not now, but later. Yeah, uh -huh. I, I, I have a feeling that I may have um, uh, bitten off more than I planned, but that's no, great. You didn't. It's you. a great question. It's one that we have raised several times, and she's worked on it for about a year and a half or so to try to get this straightened out. So we're happy to help you there. I can't wait, Karen. Okay, <laughs> I'm ready for a vote on the consent calendar. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. All those opposed? motion passes, then let's move to uh, action items. Item number one, we have the resolution and extension. And Anthony, Trustee Varney, I will. Well, I have just two, two points. One includes the other, but uh, as a member of the Finance Committee, I don't believe I'm aware of what the points are that are under discussion between our board and the Board of Supervisors that are necessary to be able to get a final agreement. And the other thing I don't think it's ever been discussed and agreed upon by the Finance Committee is the concept of allowing our CFO to meet with the, his component on the Board of Supervisors and exceed our line of credit limit without an action of the Board. And I, I think that needs to be discussed and understood because I'm not sure that's a good idea to delegate that authority to um, a CFO or, or anyone. I think it takes board action. I'm not directing it at the CFO. I'm just saying it takes, should take board action to go into that kind of debt, a debt in excess of a fixed amount. Uh, so so I'll, I'll just make a few comments, and then David, if you want to chime in, please, please do. So thanks for your comments, Trustee Barney. Um, with respect to the debt agreement, that all, all the terms of the agreement are really the, the, the basis of the discussion. So the primary thing is that they can schedule. Uh, uh, and then some, for example, the one that you just mentioned, uh, some of the terms in which, you know, how we deal with uh, issues if they were to occur during the life of the payment. So, so the terms, the, uh, the, the length of time of the payment schedule, the amount, and how they escalate or de-escalate over the course of that time period. Uh, what happens if uh, um, we need a provision uh, in place to, to allow for circumstances where uh, we have a momentary blip in the, um, in the debt based off of payment schedules and, and whatnot and what authority. Actually, it's not the authority that we would have, it's the authority that the, uh, the auditor controller would have to be able to adjust that accordingly. But all of that is up for discussion. It is not, uh, I want to just talk a little bit about process. This request is not to uh, grant any authority to actually change those terms uh, from any any differently than what they are right now. It's just to extend the, the current agreement until we can actually work on those. But before they actually go forward, as I said earlier, they come back to this board for vetting, uh, um, consideration, approval, what have you, uh, and before they go to the board of supervisors for ultimate adoption. So. Well, again, on, on a parallel track, um, One of our goals is to get ourselves in a position where we can access other sources of funding so we won't have to rely on the county for funding. Mm -hmm. And at the last finance committee meeting, we were advised that our net, our negative equity situation was such that we weren't going to be able to access funding outside of the county. So I, I think it's important that we sit down and be sure Light of it, you know, all the progress that's been made and all the issues that are presented, that we are requesting 
enough money at this time from the county so that we will be able to move forward for an extended period of time sure. without coming back and saying, gosh, we need more money. Sure. And I don't know the answer to that, or, or we need less money. I don't know, but I think it's time to think about that again and review it in light of our negative equity situation and how that does away with an alternative. We only have one alternative at this point, which is the county. That's fair. I certainly agree with that. I think the um, <clears throat> one of the uh, intents of this extension is to allow us time to complete our uh, long-term financial planning model, <clears throat> which should inform us about um, <clears throat> what level of uh, debt might be required uh, <clears throat> at various points in time and how long uh, the proposed permanent agreement really becomes effective in terms of meeting our needs. Um, <clears throat> uh, I want to say that I, I may have overstated the case last meeting access to any uh, type of financing, for example, with lease financing. Um, <clears throat> I have had discussions with um, financial institutions who are actually uh, very interested in um, talking to us based on our performance. And so uh, it's probably not the case that there would never be any access to capital, but certainly with the balance sheet with negative equity that, that at a minimum uh, requires uh, some explanation. I think the appropriate course of action is to complete the long-term financial plan, have it reviewed by the finance committee. That should give us the ability to have an intelligent discussion about what our credit needs are going to be in the future. Yes. And um, a couple of things from okay. um, most of these are they're, they're longer-term issues that um, you know, arise reading the current draft of this. And I'll just you know. And, I'll start by saying that there are multiple ways to resolve these concerns. You know, one is to have different terms of the contract. The other is to have you know, a set of management plans in place, like how do we address these things. So you know, the, the first is, um, you know, as it stands, the interest rate in the contract is, is variable. It's based upon the short-term interest rate, which for now and for a considerable period of time is going to exceedingly flow. You know, so you know, the interest bill is Trustee Luciano, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt you, but are, are you having a conversation now about a new agreement and giving some ideas about a new agreement? Is that what you're Well, I, I think, yes. Um, I, thought, I thought there was going to be an opportunity to discuss that now, maybe not. Well, I'm not opposed to it. It's just yeah. that I want to make certain that we understand that the motion on the floor yeah. it is for passing the, extending the current agreement. Right. And once we extend that current agreement, then uh, I think, like you, I have some issues about anything that we fair, develop fair, in the future. Yeah. So, so, with respect to the current agreement, I have no issues, and I think we should extend it for six months. So, as long as there's an opportunity to talk about, you know, um, to provide some, uh, you know, uh, thoughts and observations to management on you know, what they might be doing over the next six months. And I think that's what you're hearing from all of us. That we really kind of want to have, because have a voice in as you begin to move this forward. Ultimately, it's going to be the decision that you guys make. But um, we really have some ideas about what is more palatable to the board in terms of accountability um, and the sustainability. So. Understood, and uh, that's absolutely the case. And part of the reason why. Uh, 
uh, we're doing this extension because the, the sequence of discussions that have to occur here and with the board to get the, the various approvals uh, at the time they just uh, ran out, quite honestly. And so, so rather than try to rush something through and try to get it to you and say, we need you to adopt this so that we have something in place by the end, again, there was a, a, a willingness and a graciousness, I would say, on the part of the county to say, let's give you a little bit more time, let's work through this, and give you the opportunity to have these discussions with your board around what are your concerns so that hopefully we can all find a point of agreement and consensus. Wonderful. Maybe what we could do is put it on in the January for a discussion, okay. and then the board members here can air air their concerns and I you, that you can right. do with what, whatever works. Whatever we can. Yes. yes. And I'd be can. happy to do that. Okay. Well, okay. then I'm going to. Uh, do I have a, a first and a second on this? Yeah. Okay. All those in favor of passing the agreement? All those opposed? We don't know. Oh, sorry. I move. I second. Thank you. Um, thank you. Okay. Once again, all those in favor? Aye. Thank you. Okay. Uh, committee reports are, oh no, we have uh, the calendar. Did you, board, have an opportunity to look at the calendar? Can I have a motion then to approve the calendar? Move approval. First and second, all those in favor? Aye. Aye. Opposed? Great, calendar's done. Uh, you have your committee reports, they're all in writing. Uh, any questions by any of you on the written committee reports? Okay. Um, then we have information items from you that's also written. Any question on the information items? There's such an amenable Okay, uh, then we're going to Actually, move. Oh, um, sorry, Mr. Chair, I have a, a question. Actually, not a question, but um, Terry Lightfoot or Carla Denny Segwards regarding the legislative and um, local government. Mm -hmm. I just wondered why there was no, um, why the, the um, End of Life Option Act wasn't included in the report, because I think that will impact probably some of our that's a great question. It was actually included in the September report, um, and so I, I should say that we're 99.9% .9 certainty it was in the September report. Because it, it's November now, right? So it would have been the October, I'm sorry, the October report. Okay. So. Well, then um, I just asked for a future meeting if we could have a little more um, sure. report, expanded report about the impacts and implications. Oh, okay. Yeah, we made reference to the governor signing that legislation right. and reference to the fact that we're doing an analysis now of the implications of that. Um, one of the things that our Health Equity Council has done in the past, and also uh, Karen Bashaw's team, has helped us really unpack how those legislative actions um, impact our workflow and what operational processes we need to put in place to address them. And so we're in the process of analyzing that. Well, hopefully you will be analyzing it and we'll hear from your expertise before. Uh, yeah. I'll work as fast as I can. <laughs> <laughs> That's an important issue. Thank you. Thank you for raising it. Okay. Um, then no other questions, and I'm going to open the second session for public comment.
Do we have anybody else who wishes to make public comment to the board? Alameda County's neediest mental health patients. 
I ask you to support a, a census cap of 50 with immediate implementation while other placement options are urgently pursued. Thank you. Thank you, Rachel. Schwartz, if you would mind lining up so that we can just, it won't take so long. Good evening. Uh, my name is Ruby. I have 25 years of service at John George. Hello, welcome to John George. Giving honor to the people that we serve. We are proud people. We are fortunate enough to serve people that society has forgotten. Uh, in spite of the opposition, our manager Fred Tatum has brought a human and kind touch to uh, PES. He's brought back the courage that we're used to. Thank you so much, Fred. Uh, I can't get over how many people are here. All of, all of the staff are not here, but they have spoken. Uh, we have 253, 283 SEIU members, 152 have uh, signed the ballot, and I'm going to read it to you. The PES census be capped at 50 patients so that the human, caring, and safe environment of care can be achieved. Frederick Tatum be reinstated. Oh, that's okay. I don't need a mic anyway. <laughs> Frederick Tatum be reinstated immediately so that the real gains that have been achieved under his leadership can be continued. Director Nursing be removed from her position for her responsibility in targeting whistleblowers, creating a hostile work environment, and failing to act as a leader when leadership was needed. The people have spoken. Thank you. Hello, my name is Ben Castillo. I'm a nurse, and I'm proud to say I work in the PES at John George. <clears throat> I'm here to speak just very briefly about safety on the actual unit themselves. I am personally a victim of an assault that occurred on October 7th. Uh, I will be requiring more than likely a major reconstruction surgery on my right shoulder. It took place during a takedown with the patient that was reluctant to leave the facility. Um, these occurrences happen to staff daily. I see the, my brothers and sisters behind me, in front of me actually. Many of them have been assaulted. I've been assaulted. Do we write it up? No, it's, it's what we do. It's the community that we serve. It's the clients that we help. It's the gift that we're given to work at this facility. I understand what it is, you know, what it means to be injured on the job. I understand that 
the job does come with its inherent dangers. I was told that when I first applied. Um, I, was, I went to school to become a nurse. I did my internship at John George. I made my way back to John George after I had a fitting resume to work there. I find this place to be my home. I'm proud to work with my family. We, all we ask for is a safe facility to work in. And please, bring back our leader. Yes. He unites us. Yes. He brought us together. Thank you so much. Francesca Tannenbaum, who can't be here this evening. My name is Francesca Tannenbaum, and I'm the Director of Patients' Rights Advocates for Alameda County. Because I was a recipient of numerous emails circulated on this subject, I feel obliged to offer my own comments. Thank you for the opportunity, but <clears throat> due to my health concerns, I could not be here in person. My heart is fully invested in John George Hospital. A resident of Alameda County and 18 years as a patient's rights advocate has had me the experience of a whole range of ups and downs at John George. Um, my staff are on, at John George Psychiatric Pavilion units every workday. They observe the experience of the patients and, of course, the staff members as well. This county's mental health system leans hard on John George, which receives every person put on a 5150 hold, as well as taking <coughs> in nearly every other type of mental health challenge in the community, whether the, whether the hospital is the appropriate place for it or not. This means that a small area of the PES gets very overcrowded, making it very difficult for the staff to provide care. In my 18 years working here, overcrowding has always been an issue. State Licensing has even refused to cite the facility for violations involving excessive numbers of patients and lengths of stay. They acknowledge this to be beyond the control of the facility, having no options to go on diversion. When I got the email sent by various individuals from John George, I could see that the lines of communication had broken somewhere. I was shocked to be cc'd on emails that were clearly meant to be internal communications and seeing them sent to people out of the, in the community to people with no authorization to take action on the census problem at CES. My impression was that the intention was to stir up sentiment in the community and embarrass intended recipients of the emails. Since the relation between the administration and staff are not my purview, I focused on the well-being of the patients. I asked my staff to monitor the situation and interview patients for any complaints they might have. It goes on quite a bit. After several days of monitoring, my staff reported to me that the patients were not in any unusual distress and that the <coughs> PES staff uh, members were continuing to provide miraculous patient care and were familiar with and keeping patients comfortable in the face of unreasonably crowded conditions. We work in a very, every facility in this county and couldn't be more impressed with the talents and dedication of those in PES and John George in general. What caused, sorry, what caused my concern was that my staff had represented six to eight patients a day in hearings at Helm PES, meaning that those patients stayed at least four days in PES, an unusual length of stay, indicating to me that something unusual was going on. I questioned my staff who repeatedly told me that care of patients in PES was exceptional 
and the staff were some of the most skilled we ever saw throughout the county. It goes on. We can email you the whole, whole um, document. Okay. Thank you, Beverly, and So I'm one of the physicians uh, who works at John George. Um, I'm not saying this to be like, oh, I work, but I probably work the most number of hours this year. So I feel like I have a good handle on John George. And one thing I wanted to say is people refer to the administration. And I don't think that, without going into details, I don't think it's the whole administration. There are aspects of the administration that are particular problems. But I don't want to, in my views, discuss the whole administration. Specific to PES, part of the reason why I'm here is because based on certain decisions, which I don't think are the entire administration, it is probably the least safe place I've ever worked at. And I've worked in seven prisons and inpatient units in four different countries. Um, and the thing is that Sometimes what I hear is, well, what about the patients? There is no difference between staff safety and patient safety. Because if you think about it, I mean, there's this, it's like, uh, you know, the mind and the body separate. They're not. Because if you think about it, a nurse could just stand there, and they don't have to. If a patient's, you know, on they're going off, you know, uh, uh, it's not like they're hurting the nurse. The nurses go out there and risk getting hit every single day to protect those other patients or to protect that person from themselves. So you're hearing a lot about like safety, and it's kind of like, well, again, you know, maybe that's just part of the job. They are 100% linked. They're also, as a physician, linked to the physician's safety. The patients, this is a good example. The patients are sort of in a central area, the milieu. There are nine doctors who stated they will not go into that milieu without three staff members. Which, if that happens, then even six to one, that's 18 patients that won't get cared for. A person, a doctor, three weeks on the job was choked. And you may hear numbers that are discussed in terms of the number of assaults. I am sorry to say they are ridiculously wrong. I can probably think of more assaults off the top of my head than were logged this year. And I'm not going to go too much into why, but let's just say we are not encouraged in various ways to log them. And the thing is, this lack of safety is so joined doctors patients, nurses, all right, thank you. Thank you, Doctor. Well, we can wait until you do my time. Okay. Who, who's Sorry. that? Sorry, Juanita Williams, I'll donate my time. Well, you'll have to wait until your time comes, I'm sorry. Uh, sir, uh, who's next on the list? Marianne. 
Dan, are you donating your time? Lucille Edwards, Peggy Banks. When we talk about patients, and I know somebody spoke and said patient satisfaction is okay in PES, perhaps what I heard, I'd have to ask who they're talking to because what I see is I see 18-year-old girls huddled in the corner because they're so scared of what's going on in the milieu. And overstaffed nurses who don't have time to protect that little girl. That little girl could be <coughs> any of our family members. And I feel like I have to almost be more protective of that person even though they're not my patient. And I've seen this the whole year, and that's maybe why I get emotional about it. And it's, it's been hard to see this whole year, and I couldn't understand it. And again, I'm not, I want to be honest, that it's not about the whole John George administration. It's about aspects of it. Aspects of the administration have so blatantly ignored discussions of safety. Two years ago, there was a letter saying how much more safe things needed to be. There was a letter three or four weeks ago saying this person, this uh, physician, was scared to walk in the milieu with the patients without a pen. And all of this has been ignored. And we get to go as doctors back into that little room, doctor's room. We don't have to be on the floor like the nurses do most of the time. And even the nurses get to go into the nursing station. What about that 18-year-old girl or that 72-year-old man? They have to wait out there. They have to wait out there sometimes with on the ground. Now, I'm not going to get into the politics of a cap, not a cap. But what I am going to get into is the fact that patients are not being served. Nurses are not being served. Doctors are not being served. And I know it's a strong word. And again, I have to emphasize, I don't look at the whole administration as responsible for it. But it's unconscionable. It's unconscionable for me to have to see to know nurses are going to get hit, that I know in that week a nurse is going to get assaulted. And I know that the census is going to get high enough that there are going to be those people huddled in corners and sleeping on the ground. And I know that on various days I'm going to have to be a little more protective of my colleagues <coughs> because they're scared, because they won't go into the And I guess the last thing that I'll say, it's hard for me too to see that the nurses aren't even staffed six to one. I know you guys are sick of hearing numbers. And, and the reason I say that is because it's not an opinion question. Based on the emergency, MTALA, which I mean, you know, basically we are an emergency room. It's not an opinion, we're an emergency <coughs> room. That ratio is four to one. It is ridiculous being licensed, being licensed. Thank you, Dr. Schwartz. I think we really got the point about the safety. We do. Thank you. Can I just say the last? The licensing, we are an emergency room based on the definition by EMTALA, not a crisis stabilization unit. The fact that we're fight they're fighting for six to one, it is frankly against the law for it not to be four to one. Thank you. of, of individuals who wish to speak. And 
Um, I think this board has very clearly heard the issues of ratios and of safety. So I'm going to ask, are, is anyone here who wants to say something besides the issue of ratio and safety? I, I would. Okay. Your name? Lori. Lori. Thank you. <coughs> and, and I don't mean to cut anybody off, but uh, I think this board is well aware and has and have heard you've made a really strong argument about the issue of safety, and I promise you it will not go ignored. My name is Lori Lukowitz. I uh, used to work at John George. Um, I have a BSN and I'm a registered nurse. I come from three magnet hospitals, including UCSF. Um, I also have been nominated for the DAISY Award. To people who do not know what the DAISY Award is, it's a nomination for the top top nurses in the country. Okay, And I'm here for them. Um, I would like to um, tell you just briefly, because um, I'm here for them and I'm here for Fred, um, but I, I do want to um, let you know that I was terminated from John, John George. Um, very brief, um, I was terminated because I was an advocate for a patient there. Um, I have witnesses. Um, I, had, uh, I was supposed to discharge a patient. His blood pressure was 220 over 120, and I got yelled at by a Unit B manager um, saying that I was not following discharge orders, and I was, I even had the paperwork. Um, I'm gonna continue, I'm, I'm not gonna go into that too, too much, but I was terminated. Um, I spoke to Judy Lynn in an email. I spoke to Guy. I spoke to Jerry, um, let's see, Jerry Vincent, um, and then there's a couple others that I addressed this issue to. Um, I loved working for John George, and these people are my family. And what administration is doing is awful, and it needs to stop. I left there in March 2014, and I'm still fighting. I'm not only fighting for safety. I'm, I'm fighting for the administration and what has been happening with the administration. Um, it's been an ongoing continual thing and now luckily unfortunately because of what is happening to Fred it you know we we are speaking and we need to speak because this needs to stop you are losing so many good nurses and there's so many good nurses back there you're, you're gonna lose them all you're gonna lose them all because of a, a certain administration and in particular, Judy Lynn and Rose on USB. I just want to finish. Um, over and over again, I've seen immoral behaviors from management, John George being a volatile workplace, harassment from managers, and that staff has been worried about losing their job and disciplinary actions. Uh, I've seen unhealthy and unsanitary work environments. It is horrible. I can't even tell you the type of environment that we work in. It's horrible. Patients dying unnecessarily because you're not caring about the medical part of the hospital. And, and, it, and it's sad that you, that you call yourself a hospital because it's not a hospital. It's not a hospital. All I ask is that 
things change, that you really look into your managers and you really, really see that there is a problem with your management and they are harassing and they are threatening. And, and this is why we only have eight speakers up here because they're afraid. They're standing up and they're afraid because they don't want to lose their job like I did. Lastly, I just want to say one last thing. I'm here, like I said, for all of you, and I do believe that things can change, that there's a lot of potential with John George, and just remember that we're here for, for the patients. We're here for the patients, and I'm an advocate, and I'm a nurse, because I, I just want to, I care about people. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Yes, and my, my back is to many of you, and I apologize, but I want you to know the board has in fact heard you, so has your administration. We will be working on this issue, so your, your comments and your concerns are not going ignored by this board, this administration, or the county office, I promise you. Please, and you state your name. My name is Marianne Pettigo. I'm a nurse in the PDS at John George. I respect what you're saying about our safety, but we're here. I've been assaulted. I'm not even going to read my speech, but my point is I've been assaulted. I've been bit badly. I have been punched, hit, kicked. The safety is concerned. We, we've staffed over 50 patients, 60, 70, 80. Our lives, our lives of our patient that we serve is in jeopardy. Just like the doctor said, I have an 18-year-old crying, scared to death because nobody's protecting her. We need the census cap. We need our manager back to support a therapeutic, safe environment for the patients we serve. One more statement and I'll be done. Mental illness is a hurricane in the brain. With all the illness crashing together, generating massive confusion, hallucination, panic attacks, and sending their unfortunate victims to the bottom. This destructive nature is a storm that can lead up to suicide, 15% of those who do not seek treatment. For those who survive, come to us, John George. Expect to have a safe haven, a therapeutic environment, so we can tame their storms. Please, board, please, help us help our patients. That's all I have to say. Hi, yes, my name is Kalanda Gilbert, and I am part of the Environmental <coughs> Services Department. And so I'm going to take you on a journey through the eyes of EBS. We get there at 6 o'clock in the morning. When it's over capacity, we have to think of strategies in order to effectively clean the facility, which if it's overcrowded and it's understaffed, we now have a dangerous environment. We have weapons on our carts that we have to push and maneuver. By being overcrowded, the patients are already agitated, they're irritated. If we're coming in there, we're wooling our cart, they're like, get out, we've been called out of our names. We have had EBS staff be assaulted. And I'll give you a clear example. We had a staff member that was cleaning. We had nursing staff that was taking care of a patient administering an IM. 
at that particular time, he was being assaulted in his back. So he had to make the decision, do I push my cart to get it out of here while the patient is still punching me in my back to save the rest of the environment? Or do I just save myself and get up out of there? So these are the things that we have to deal with. And if we don't have that cap size down to the amount that it needs to be, we cannot go in there and clean. They don't even want us to come in there and clean. So when you come in and you're upset because the floors are nasty, we can't get in there. The maintenance quarters can't do it because we're in an environment that's built literally for 26 people. And I know you guys don't want to hear numbers, but the highest number that I have walked into was 82 patients. So how do 82 patients fit into a room that's only built for 26 people? It's like a sardine can. And you know how a sardine can smells. So you can imagine all the Title VIII laws that we are violating when it comes to Cal OSHA. So I ask you to cap it down so that we're able as EBS to do our jobs, which will be protect the public health and the environment and protect the employees from injury and illness. Thank you. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Virginia Fossa. I'm a registered nurse in the PES. A few hours ago, I was asked to read a statement from one of the nurses that was going to be here to present, and he was told at the last minute he could not attend. My name is Troy Nixon. I'm an RN in the PES of John George and a shop steward with SEIU 1021. I'm here desperately asking for your help to correct a situation that is in dire need of repair. I'm talking about the overcrowding conditions, the increasing assaults on staff and patients, and an environment that is dirty, smelly, and far from a therapeutic and supportive environment. We're expected to care for so many people in this type of situation. All efforts have been exhausted by the line staff and administration are turning a blind eye to the matter. That has been festering for quite some time without any resolve. The response to our concerns are, we are aware of the problem, we're working on it, it's gonna take time. We saw our numbers skyrocket. The numbers I'm talking about is patient census skyrocket after an article that was written by the California Hospital Association, which described in great details the type of environment desperately needed to relieve the burden on local emergency rooms, who were not well equipped or experienced to take care of individuals that showed up in psychiatric crisis. California Hospital Association talked about a PBS typically having decor, lighting, sound, music, and open space design with a goal of encouraging healing and recovery. Our upper management and chief of psychiatry decided that it's our obligation at John George to further extend our already busy psych emergency room to accept and treat those that are in crisis and call it the Alameda model. However, our model is very different than the one that the California Hospital Association <coughs> described. Our model consists of taking anyone for any reason including those in the medical ER, regardless of exhibiting a current crisis or not, knowing that reimbursement ranges between $97 to $140 per hour automatically without questions. 
The problem besides the things that I mentioned already is that our current working conditions do not support the increasing number of people entering our building. This is in direct contrast to the California Health Association design, and we virtually have nowhere to put these patients. The wait time to see a doctor initially is about 18 hours, and they're most certainly kept overnight before an evaluation is complete, which according to Title 22 is against the law. We have run out of food. You can possibly be a victim of an unprovoked assault, lucky to sleep on a dirty lounge chair that has never been cleaned, or you may get a filthy mat to lie down and sleep on the floor. We average... Virginia, oh, you're going to have to cut. Can you, can you shorten this up a bit? I'm almost done. Okay, thank you. We, on average, see between 50 to 80 people in a space intended for 11 on a daily basis. A census cap of 50 is imminent in order for us to execute the Alameda model that puts its patients first. It would allow us to provide a caring, nurturing, and therapeutic environment with the goal of helping individuals manage their lives and affairs free of hospitalization. If this was a kennel and you crammed 10 dogs in a cage that was meant for five, the PETA people, which is the people for ethical treatment of animals, would stop this immediately. I'm not comparing people to animals. My point is why we as humans, why we as human beings don't feel that our patients are deserving of better. Thank you. My name is Dana Langham. I've um, been an RN at John George Hospital since January uh, 25th of 2012. On um, November 22nd of 2012, which was Thanksgiving Day of that year, I was injured for the first time. On September 12th, 2013, I was injured for the second time. Uh, along with those injuries, I've had to endure five nerve root blocks. Um, but I want to get to the point that um, um, that is more concerning to me. And that is, from a health standpoint, when you have patients sleeping on the floors, along with mold being in the patient's bathroom and in the vents of the hospital, not to mention rodents and bed bugs being a continuing issue that management won't address. It's amazing, it's amazing how management finds funds to put in big screen TVs and granite countertops that seem to be a disconnect from funds where they should be allocated. Management's ideas and improvements seem to be more appearance than for the safety and welfare of the patients and staff at John George Hospital.
over 35. And those 35 years have been in management in the mental health system. I've seen both outpatient and inpatient. Matter of fact, I was the primary management of the birth of PBS. Up until we built John Ford and I reigned a few years there. And then I went into an office where I oversaw the whole hospital, inpatient and outpatient. What I see, this is my opinion, is fragmentation. We have three inpatient areas. We have one outpatient area. And we don't have meetings that address issues. We don't come together as one, yet we are one. Everybody does their own thing. It gets to be confusing. We have services needed nurses. We do it this way over here. We do it this way over here. And the standards. Oh, nobody told us about that. This is the issue, communication. In my, as a manager, before we got rid of the clinical nurse degrees who were basically charge nurses, before we got rid of them, we used to have monthly meetings where we addressed some issues. After the clinical nurseries were gone, and people like me, the assistant to the unit managers, we haven't had a general meeting in over six months. There are no minutes. There are no planning. There's not any proactive kind of things going on. And this is kind of bothering me. But what pops up on the screen is, a mandatory meeting every other Wednesday. It can't get on. That used to be the standard. It pops up on that screen. Of course, it doesn't exist. Because I go around saying, did you see that? Did you go? No, 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 no. So the vehicle of communication so we can be proactive and not have these problems is what I'd like to advocate for. Thank you very much. Good evening. I'm in a little bit of a different situation than all these other speakers here because Will you I don't, state your name, please? Oh, I'm, I apologize. My name is Terry Mazurkowitz. I am the spouse and husband of Lori, the nurse over there who spoke that uh, was discharged because the patient had a BP of 220 over 120. Um, also, I'm not here, like when I speak to her, because I, I, I understand the business aspect of it and I understand the patient aspect of it. And I believe it's Mr. Finley as the new CEO. You have a big job ahead of you. And, and just so you guys know who you are talking to, I personally have voicemails on my cell phone for business consulting from a celebrity on TV that's recruited me for my services. And here's what I found. Even listening before the nurses, it sounds to me like this is a constant. You guys have one million fires. Put them out. The problem is, is you guys have one million fires sitting around here. Instead of making the fires happen, figure out your systems, your processes, your procedures to fix them and so they don't erupt like this. This whole meeting, I stayed in here while all the nurses were out there just to listen to the operations, the expenses, the let's do this, let's put it off six months. That's not how you do business. Not if you want to succeed, period. There's no question about that. But for my wife to come home when that happened, that patient had a BP of 220 over 120. And Rose, who I will call out, Rose, then brought her aside and said, you are not discharging that patient fast enough. If that was your family member with a 220, they're all medical, 
220 over 120, would you want that patient discharged immediately? Yes? No yeses. No. No, thank you. Then my wife was then placed on admin leave over it. All of a sudden she comes home to me and says, oh, I got a phone call from Adam Cole from HR. They're placing me on administrative leave over this. And I'm like, what? And me on the business side said, something screwed up here. Well, it proceeded to Rose, who always left early. Rose stayed late that night. We come to find out later, and I'm not going to name names right now because everybody is in fear of their jobs there. But guess what happened after that? Your paperwork was doctored after that. The paperwork was doctored after that. Her BP was checked 220 over 120. Later, an employee was instructed to make sure you go in there and do X, Y, Z so it makes it look better. The doctor brought up certain things, how certain things look good. It's kind of funny to me how with Press Ganey, Lori was always told, you're the best, you're the best, you're the best. She's a Daisy Award winner, yet she's terminated over an issue with Rose. And Judy Lynn was made aware of it as well, and Judy Lynn does not belong in that position either. Simple. Thank you, Jerry. Hi, my name is Stephanie Johnson. I appreciate everybody's time. Um, I've been a nurse for 40 years. I came to John George in 2006 from Mississippi. Let me repeat where I came from. I came from Mississippi. In the whole 30 years, I never saw a patient sleeping on the floor, serving food on the floor. And 10 years later, we're at that same point. I want to know how many of you want to feed your mother on the floor? How many of you want to take a sick, sick person, like Dr. Schott said, there's so many times when these 18 years old who's in love and just because their boyfriend broke up with them said, I'm going to kill myself, and they get placed on a 5150. And then they have to be re-traumatized by come walking into our PES. Or some mother who has just lost her child, and you bring her in here, and she got to sleep on the floor <coughs> by a total stranger that's sleeping six inches away from them who probably is homeless, has not had a bath, who has to wait 10 hours to see the doctor. You know where we're taking nursing? You know where we ta we've taken John George back to 1900. I'm sure they were treated better back in the 1900. The only thing we need to do now at John George is get a big hose and just water everything down because we have not nursing, we're not treating our patients, it's no therapeutic environment. When our nursing director stands up and says, oh, I have no part of it. Uh, I let my managers dictate the assignment. If you know your managers are not following the rules and regulations, it's your duty to say, no, this is not what Alameda do. If our administration can't stand up and do the right thing, then the board of trustees can't stand up and do the right thing. When you go, go home, my favorite saying has always been, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired. But you know what? I'm changing that today. You know what my favorite saying is going to be? I'm shame of all of us. 
uh, worked with its set of challenges to uh, deliver uh, a very different result. So uh, thank you to the staff for uh, working through a hard year with the board and, uh, uh, and in a tough environment. And uh, thank you to the board. And uh, I look forward to um, following you on Twitter and liking you on Facebook. <laughs> I still am. And did you? I think uh, I reported out closed session already. Yeah, I've already I've already reported out closed session. Thank you. I just wanted to reiterate to the staff members behind me, and I apologize for my back being to you, but that this board did in fact hear. I know that your CEO heard and um, there will be work on this issue so please take heart um, and we want to thank you deeply for the hard work you do for those of our walking wounded and clearly we know the sacrifices you are making so thank you so very much um, and i adjourn i wish everyone a happy thanksgiving and i adjourn this meeting in the honor of peace